When I asked my Syrian friend, Amr, what he thought when I said the word Syria, he said, chaos. And he would be right. Ever since I was little, the news in the Middle East was, was conflict this, conflict that, terrorists, extremists. But just taking this modern approach does almost no justice to the deep, rich history and culture nuances of the region. It is a biased and unfair assessment. You know, while this is true, you know, you know, bad stuff over there does happen. Don't get me wrong. It's just not the whole picture. It's just one side of a megagon. And I'm not, I'm not here to say, oh, the West is horrible and horrific. No, it's never that simple. It's, it's black and white thinking, I think, exposes many of us. And although it is easy to do, you cannot group a place where the first civilizations were formed into a simple generalization. If you disagree, I mean, then you have every right to, of course. But finding the negative is always easier than finding the positive. And I don't want this to be easy. Through my American biased eyes, I think Islamic thinkers are not done enough justice in the Western tradition. It was, in fact, Islamic thinkers who preserved the ancient classical texts of Aristotle and Plato. And Islamic thinkers, I mean, they had their own philosophical giants as well. Talk about Avicenna, and along with many, many others. I'm not here in a fanatical sense praising Islam and cursing every other religion, but I am here as a biased observer looking at the region's politics, history, philosophy, and religion through a Westerner's perspective. And I found something that fit my worldview. That is why today I want to focus on Faisal and the Syrian Congress after World War I. These people were Arab nationalists who believed in liberalism. This is not the contemporary sense of Republican or Democrats, but the, in the Enlightenment sense of individualism, liberty, consent of the governed, and equality before the law. Before they could set out to achieve these goals for Syria, they had to fight for their freedom against the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was originally founded in 1299 and would go on to survive more than 600 years you know, until finally it officially ended around 1922. The U.S. as a country has only been around for maybe 246 years, if that can you know, give you some perspective. And the Ottoman Empire it grows to be a dominant player, a dominant global player that rivals many powers in Europe. And it got to this point thanks to the help of some very advanced military tactics. It's one of those, I don't know, if not one of the first nations, I think, to use gunpowder in a military sense. Maybe you've seen those massive cannons that could crumble any fortress that broke down the walls of Constantinople. I mean, it's no wonder these guys were so successful. You know, I think to be fair, China kind of used gunpowder originally in the ninth, in the ninth century, but they don't think use it militarily yet. And the Ottomans also had a very well-designed bureaucracy, and vast amounts of riches due to international trade passing through its borders. So there's a lot of reasons why they survived so long. But historians usually agree it started to, to decline around the 17th century, 
Now it took, if you think about it, about 300 years for it to decline. So, you know, in the grand scheme of things, that's not so bad. I mean, look at Nazi Germany. It took, you know, only a few years starting at their decline. You know, times are different, right? But, you know, not so bad. Historians have written whole volumes about why and how the Ottoman Empire collapsed. But just to focus on sort of the end of their life while they're lying on their deathbed gasping for air. You know, that final nail in the coffin was that they chose the wrong side in World War I. They sided with Germany. And by about this time, really, a lot of internal struggles and constant wars had weakened the Ottoman Empire into a shadow of its former self. In 1908, six years before Archduke Franz Ferdinand would be killed by a Serbian setting a chain of events that would culminate in the death of millions of people, a group of intellectuals known as the Young Turks, a group of Turkish nationalists who had protested against the suppression of their freedoms by the Ottoman Empire and demanded the reinstatement of the suspended constitution of 1876, which protected people's liberties, including the rights of minorities. Author Kemal Kapart, in his article titled The Transformation of the Ottoman State, writes, quote, The Young Turk Revolution of 1908 resulted from combined efforts of the army officers, the town notables, and their educated offspring. It was the prelude to the, the fundamental social, economic, and political changes which combined with the military defeat in 1918 brought the empire to an end, end quote. The Young Turks would go on to commit many, many reforms, I think most of which a lot of us Westerners would agree with. I mean, these included providing better education for women, better primary schools. But most of this is often overshadowed in history by some of the atrocities that they committed, specifically by the Committee of Union and Progress, which was a organization that sort of branched from the Turkish Young Turks movement, and they were militant, authoritative, and paranoid. If you open your history cookbook to page 56, you'll find a recipe for disaster. The only three ingredients are militant, authoritative, and paranoid. You know, make sure you crank that heat up to get those full flavors. Maybe you've heard of the Armenian Genocide. The Christian Armenians who originally welcomed the Constitution of 1908 are now becoming increasingly concerned. The Young Turks claimed the Armenians were colluding with the Christian European powers and would go on to slaughter them. Slightly slaughtered between 600,000 and 1.2 million. Lieutenant Saeed Ahmed Mukhtar Bas is charged with transporting Armenians from Trebizond to Erzurum. He writes down his first-person account of the events. He writes, quote, in July 1915, I was ordered to accompany a convoy of deported Armenians. It was the last batch from Trebizond. There were in the convoy 120 men, 700 children, and about 400 women. From Trebizond, I took them from Gumushkana. Here, the 120 men were taken away, and, as I was informed later, they were all killed. At Gumushkana, I was ordered to take the women and children to Erzikan. On the way, I saw thousands of bodies of Armenians unburied. Several bands of Shotas met us on the way and wanted me to hand over to them women and children, but I persistently refused. I did leave on the way about 300 children with Muslim families who were willing to take care of them and educate them. The Mutasarif 
of Erzikan ordered me to proceed with the convoy to Kamak. At the latter place, the authorities refused to take charge of the women and children. I fell ill and wanted to go back, but I was told that as long as the Armenians in my charge were alive, I would be sent from one place to the other. However, I managed to include my batch with the deported Armenians that had come from Erzurum. In charge of the latter was a colleague of mine, Mohammed Afindi, from the Gendarmerie. He told me afterwards that after leaving Kamak, they came to a valley where the Euphrates ran. A band of Shotas sprang out and stopped the convoy. They ordered the escort to keep away and then shot every one of the Armenians and threw them in the river. End quote. I'm trying to put myself in one of these Armenians' places, and I just can't do it. I, I can't fathom knowing what it's like to watch my own child die in front of me and then turn around and it be my turn. I'm someone who has to have at least some sort of control. Uh, I'm very claustrophobic, and one of my greatest fears is being stuck in some small crawl space with no way out. To me, that's one of the worst things in the world. To an Armenian mother or child or father, that's nothing compared to what they had to deal with. Being transported to your certain death with no deus ex machina, Marvel hero sw swinging in from the sky, the sky coming in to save the day at the last second. I mean, there's not going to be any of that. It's terrifying. It's over for about 600,000 to 1.2 million individuals. It's like being in hell. I mean, what if you had to go through 1.2 million variations of the same experience? I mean, I think some would be better than the others, right? Maybe the, one, the ones where you take a bullet to the head and die quickly. Those would definitely be better than the ones where you watch your loved one die and then you slowly are killed yourself. But I guess none of them are really good, per se. But this massacre is not the only atrocity committed by the young Turks. The Arabs, who had been oppressed under the Ottoman Empire for about 400 years, would also face the onslaught and oppression of the young Turks. Because the young Turks were Tur Turkish nationalists, who used their power to dominate other races in their country, the Arabs responded with their own nationalist movement, which rose up against their oppression. I mean, this was normal for the time. This was a time of nationalism. Elizabeth Thompson and How the West Stole Democracy from the Arabs writes, quote, Early in World War I, even as many Arab soldiers fought on the side of the Turks in the victorious battles at Gallipoli, the Ottoman governor of Syria had executed a dozen prominent Arab leaders and exiled many more on suspicion of treason for their earlier political dissent, end quote. Quick note here before I keep going. Uh, I will be referring a lot back to this book throughout the episode episode it is inspired by her book it's absolutely fascinating make sure you check it out but these executions from the ottoman governor against the syrians will be the last straw it'll be the straw the straw that broke the camel's back and in may 1916 the Arab revolt officially begins now the arab army better known as the sharifian army or the hejaz army is led by a guy named sharif hussein who is a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad. In exchange for the Arabs' revolt, in exchange for their help and their aid in defeating the Ottoman Empire, the British promised the Arabs that they will recognize a single unified independent Arab state composed of Greater Syria, Iraq, and the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, greater Syria is 
importantly, is composed of Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Palestine, and Israel. And Hussein puts his son Faisal in charge of leading the Arab revolt in Syria to help the British. And on October 1st, Faisal and his Arab army will enter Damascus, the home of religion and learning, and, and now the center of the Arab cultural reawakening, what's sort of known as the Arab Renaissance. And they will be greeted by cheers and applause. But this, for the story, is only the beginning. Faisal is soon told by the British that instead of their original deal, you know, of, of, of them occupying the whole greater Syrian area, the Syrians would only be allowed to control the Syrian hinterland, which is this, it's a fra I mean, it's a fraction of what they was originally promised. This is a landlocked territory that did not consist of Lebanon or, or the Palestinian coast. And this is due to a secret agreement made by the British and the French in 1916 called the Sykes-Pickett Agreement. And this agreement only allowed for a semi-independent Arab state under both the French and British influence. Not the full sovereignty that was originally promised. I mean, understandably, the Arabs and Faisal particularly is furious. Not only would his people not receive what they were promised, but, I mean, they would also not have to report to the French and, and, and the British, right? They would have this indirect influence over the territory. Now ask yourself, if, you know, if you were in Faisal's position, what do you do? I mean, he's not as strong as the British or the French. He can't threaten them with military might. I mean, after all, they just got out of the Great War. So, I mean, what's the next step? Well, you have, maybe you've heard of the pen is mightier than the sword. Today, in this episode, we will put that saying to the test. And Faisal, I mean, he has some ammo in his back pocket. The Syrians had approved Faisal to be their leader and allowed him to set up uh, an Arab government, you know, which provided relief and order that was very necessary at the time. And they are going to send him as the representative, right? He was going to, he was going to be the diplomat for them. I mean, Faisal is—he has the the promise the British gave him. But keep in mind, importantly, this is not a formal treaty. This was sort of an agreement. But it was sufficient enough for Hussein to launch his revolt, and for the Arabs to rise up. And then finally. Faisal is going to use his diplomacy and his discussion at the Treaty of Versailles. This was a treaty that officially ended the First World War. And this is where every, all these countries got to, together, right? And the treaty, and a lot of people here, were, they, end up, they end up holding Germany responsible for the war. That was kind of the agreement. Many people were mad, right? Because they lost... You know, millions of husbands and sons, you know, they didn't return. And many more civilians lost their lives. So a large population, a large percentage of the population, wanted harsh penalties. They wanted huge reparations. They would, you know, Germany should lose territories and demilitarization. So you can see really none of these things solve 
a lot of the issues. I mean, this treaty directly influenced, right? A main cause of the Second World War was the conditions that Germany was put in after the First World War. There's a kind of an idea, right? In just war theory today. There's just the discussion of you know what you what, what do you do once you defeat a country? And what is justified? You know, after World War II, we see here like the Marshall Plan, right? You should grow it back, pour money into it. And at the Paris the Paris Peace Conference, where Faisal is headed, there's the Big Four, right? They were dominant of it. The losers, Germany, Austria-Hungary, they were not even there. At the at the conference, these nations were being carved out, and colonies were being taken. You know, this was Faisal, and this was the Arab nationalists' opportunity to finally get their sovereignty as an independent state. And this was the first time in history that small nations finally had a voice where they could present a case. And a lot of their arguments, Syrians included, relied on Wilson's 14 points as sort of their foundation. Now, it's called Wilson's 14 points because it's by a guy, the president of the United States at the time, Woodrow Wilson. And now in America, we've had famous generals become presidents, career politicians, rich businessmen, but we've never had... Or at least Woodrow Wilson was sort of the first of his kind because he was an academic. Before his presidency, he received a PhD in political science, notably the only president to hold a PhD. And he's also president of Princeton University. Now he's not considered a modern president. Really, a modern president doesn't really come around until FDR in World War II. But he is still an important president, and a president that, that studied uh, because of his notion of grand ideas and in fundamental aspirations for a country. You'll see this very much at play here in his 14 points because it outlines, you know, it outlines a world where people have an equal say with open discussion. It's sort of this idea of where the world should go after after the First World War. And this was appealing to a lot of smaller nations who were constantly being dominated by the more powerful countries. Wilson was also a opponent of slow, organic, gradual change, very deliberate. He thought that that was the best way to get the the best result, right, through trial and error. A very, uh, you know, Burke sort of an idea. So, you know, see some, some of this, some of what he says in his points or, or his, his arguments are sort of left vague, and sometimes that's intentional, sometimes it's not, because it should be sort of elastic in a sense. And also, you can't talk about Woodrow Wilson without discussing his racism, right? Because we'll see racism, or at least race has a, it's a, it's a big issue in this podcast, or at least in history. And Wilson was someone who promoted the Ku Klux Klan and pushed for and permitted segregation in Washington, D.C. Now, you would think maybe this would somehow reflect on the Arabs in some way, or at least or, or anybody else in any other country that wasn't white, or predominantly white. But as far as we can tell, I mean, this was not reflected or really extended to, to the racial justifications for colonialism or anything like that in any way. In fact, he was also very against the idea of colonizing a place based on race. And 
This is outlined in his 14 points, which is just a, it was a proposition given at the end of World War One. Like I said, it was a vision, like I said, for, for preventing another war, making the world a better place. And the Germans had originally accepted the armistice, armistice under the conditions of Wilson's 14 points. Now, I'm not going to go through every single one, but some important ones that are needed, right, for to understand what we're talking about here for the Arabs and, and Faisal was the first one is that open covenants of peace, no shady backroom deals, right? So there, there could be no hungry wolves splitting the Middle East into zones secretly. And that was Wilson's 14 po- first point because up until then, most deals were in secret. There's constantly shady meetings behind closed doors where politicians were par- partitioning parts of the world you know they'd never even been or never even heard of. So everything needed to be out in the open, and this was great for Faisal. Everything, their freedom of information would be, would be good. And the second one, which is important, is a free, open-minded, and absolutely impartial adjustment of all colonial claims based upon a strict observance of the principle that in determining all such questions of sovereignty that interests of the people population concerned must have equal weight with the equitable claims of the government whose title is to be determined. Now that is a mouthful, so basically it's just this, right? We're going to look at these colonies in an unbiased manner, and we're going to see what the people have to say, you know, as well as, as the, the sovereign government. And his, his 14 points, they spread like wildfire. And they laid this blanket of fever all over the world. These smaller countries saw a president from a rich country, you know, to keep in mind, he used to be a colony of Britain. And they, they were inspired by these grand ideals of equality and liberty and peace. And most importantly, that every group of people possesses a national consciousness that has a right to self-determination. Now, self-determination, right, what could that mean? It's vague. It means different things to different people. Maybe the Bol- the Bolsheviks took it in more of a Marxist view, but most importantly, the Arabs, right? They took it in a way that you know they are the people, and they should determine their own future based off their you know their shared national consciousness. And this fever was called the Wilsonian moment, and it was like Oprah Winfrey saying, "No, you get a car. No, you get a car." Instead of a car, it was an entire country, and the Arabs were waiting for what they felt they deserved. Right, so. The ammo that Faisal has here is he's got the British promise. He's got these open discussions at the the Paris Peace Conference for the Treaty of Versailles. He's got Wilson's points. So he could be able to make a case here. And at the conference in Paris, Faisal is watching as you know, lots of these European countries were being recognized as independent sovereign states, such as Czechoslovakia and think most of it's agreed upon now that a lot of these European states were given their sovereignty because they could back it up with firepower. You know, you don't give us what you want, you know, big stick diplomacy, right? There's also a view of the time. You see race is, is kind of a, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of underlying a lot of stuff here, but that a view that some people held, not all, but some, that only white societies were civilized enough to govern themselves sort of a contradiction there too because you know japan fought on the entente powers and you know they weren't white and they had set up an incredible society they rapidly industrialized set up a constitution very modern they could govern themselves 
And there were also people who believed, you know, oh, if we start giving the Muslims absolute freedom, you know, greater Syria than the Muslims in India, you know, they'll want some, and then, you know, Egypt will want some, and then we'll have this huge revolt on our hands. We can't have that. It becomes this sort of slippery slope almost. It was, it was nothing where it was all. If I give, you know, if I give gum, a piece of gum to Sarah, you know, maybe John will want one and then Billy will want one. And then by the time I give everyone a piece, I'll have none left. I can't. So I can't give. I'm sorry, Sarah. I can't give you a piece of gum. Now, the league also right there, there's going to be some more ammo put into Faisal's back pocket. The league also draws a covenant, which adds to Faisal's argument. The covenant, Article 22, says, quote, certain communities of people who were liberated from the Turkish Empire the Ottoman Empire, have reached a stage of development where their existence as independent nations can be provisionally recognized, subject to the rendering of administrative advice and assistance by a mandatory power until such time as they are able to stand alone. End quote. Now, there's that word, mandate, sort of vague, like what is a mandate? Is it two guys going out to dinner romantically splitting a bottle of wine? Or is it a word that can be exploited by a more powerful country to enforce its will on a smaller country? This advice and assistance by a mandatory power, you know, it's made worse because of the secret Sykes-Picot agreement, or Pickett, excuse me, that was made years earlier when France and Britain, but mostly France, we know they would have all this influence over the territory that was left to Faisal and the Syrians. So Faisal was in a tough situation. Faisal is a more moderate diplomat and he understands what's happening he's not stupid he's very smart and he has he's surrounded by a lot of people who also understand what's going on now this sykes picket agreement is sort of just an agreement on paper at this point the mandate still has not been given out nothing's been split up officially so british troops are still occupying syria and they start grabbing up this oil and what was supposed to be a french territory according to their agreement the French say, oh, well, hold on a second. That's not part of it. What do you, the hell do you think you're doing? You stay out of our zone of influence, we'll stay out of yours. The France turns to Faisal, and they you know, they tell him, uh, all right, look, kid, right? Christians, you know, they need to be protected against the Muslims. There was this, previously there was this riot in a bunch of Armenian refugees that, you know, they're starving of disease, and, 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 and 50 Christian Armenians end up being killed. You'll see there's always sort of justifications on both sides that they can use, whether good or bad. And, you know, the French is saying, all right, Faisal, you know, you just need to sort of, you know, we'll come in. You just need a little bit of reorganization or reorganizing into a small country that is weaker. They know that being dominated by European power, especially France, is not just a little bit of organizing. They find it hard to believe. Most colonial citizens would tell you there is no little organizing. No one says that. Then one says, oh, more power. You can't give power to France. They're not going to say, they're not. oh, more power, please, no, thank you. They had plenty of historical events they could look to, The even to, even to Egypt, the, both the French and the British. You know, we're, we're coming in just to help blow out, and they never end up leaving. You give them a foothold, and there they, there they stay, and they'll want more and more and more. This is through the perspective of the Arabs. And Faisal, like I said, he knows what's going on here and he won't be swindled by some great power. He puts together a presentation to present to the Supreme, Cou- the Supreme Council. And the Supreme Council is sort of in charge of all the big decisions. They made up, they're made up of delegates from all the main powers. 
Uh, most notably included Woodrow Wilson, which is good, which is good for Faisal, because Woodrow Wilson, he's on your side here. He's w- w- Wilson sort of giving Faisal the head nod, like, yeah, I got you, no worries. There's George Clemenceau, who was the French Prime Minister. Now he's in a difficult situation because he shares a lot of the kind of Republican ideas you know, of the, of the French, and so he's very sympathetic to Faisal in the Arab situation. Also in the Supreme Council, there was Lloyd George, which is the British Prime Minister, you know, and, and he might not be on their side because he boasted about conquering the Holy Land in the First World War. He called himself a crusader. It was his shining achievement. So he might not be too sympathetic. And also remember that all of these people... All these these leaders and rulers that no one rules alone. All these men have advisors and people in special positions that have their own opinions and will sometimes act on these opinions without the consent of their superiors. And these are important council members. You know, they'll face pro- pressure from both sides. One side screaming, you know, take what's ours. This is us. And this is, we deserve this. And the other side screaming, no, you know, these people have a right to the, their sovereignty and independence. And so public and private pressure is a huge factor. They all grew up, uh, these people in a time that it was very uh, traditional. Traditionally, it was the colonizing nations. That's what you kind of aspire to as a country almost. You know, it's very different from today. The younger generation today, we may look at people born in the 1950s, the 1960s, and shout out, you old timers. What do you know about? Uh, what do you know about today? Our modern way of thinking. We know what's best. I mean, think about, you know, what if it's, old-timers born in the 1850s or 1860s. Think about that. Think about totally different views they'd have in the modern times of the 19, the late 1900s. Or, sorry, excuse me, the early times of the 1900s. 1919, 1920. Right? And, and, and to these traditionalist, sort of imperialist views of the day, it was, very, it was considered very normal to look at native inhabitants of some colony as just this backdrop of the land almost. They exist as sort of another resource for work, for war. And this was often very true. Lots of uh, people from British colonies, like the British colony in, in India, they would end up fighting these wars for Great Britain. And, they, and a lot of them would do most of the dying. You know, and Faisal experienced this firsthand, although he was not a colony of Britain. He did fight with the British and against the Ottomans. And so in his presentation to the Supreme Council, he lays out some of these major, major points. The first one is that sort of this trying to get past this biased view of the day, right? Ar- no Arabs, we're civilized. You know, we fought and died for an independent Syria. But you know, not everyone saw it in that light. He also said that, you know, most Syrians, they supported the government. We all shared the, the same language. We're homogenous. You know, they're all technically white. So again, here, right, he's sort of appealing to their, their, their view, which is sort of tricky because, legally speaking, right, in the, in the United States, Arabs were white, according to Dow versus the United States, which was decided in you know, a Supreme Court case. But everyone sees, that, sees it that way, right? Then there was, um, there wouldn't be religious differences, right? That wouldn't matter as well, because all the religions, you know, we fought, we fought for this country. We fought, we want it to be this way. And he finishes up by saying, you know, if you if you don't believe me, 
then you should send an independent poll to gauge the opinions of the population. See what they think if you don't believe me. So here we're in a situation where on one hand we have a great we have these great powers who sacrificed millions of lives and almost all of their resources, and they feel justified after living, you know, in a time of imperialism and power politics, they feel justified in taking what they think is owed to them. Then we have the Arabs who were oppressed under, you know, the Young Turks, Ottoman rule, and they have these enlightenment ideas of self-determination. And not only that, there's also the League Covenant promoting them in their own country. And it's easy for us to look at this through our modern lens and see it in sort of a black and white, good and bad. I heard it in I heard Dan Carlin say it, but he's 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 quoting an Ohio University professor. He says something to the effect of, you know, history is our present politics projected onto the past. But usually there's always some sort of shade of gray. You know, some of the French uh, and British, you know, they push, push for colonization and others advocated for an independent Syria where they're based on ideology or principle or, you know, based on money. Independence, independent Syria, I mean, you know, that may be good for some big corporations. Some Arabs thought a European mandate might be good for them, especially those who were ousted after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. But it, cer it was certainly a majority, certainly a majority of the Syrians in Faisal believed that a, a French mandate would not be there to oversee a gradual evolution to an independent state. The French were there to dominate. And of all the mandates they wanted, an American mandate would be better if they had to have one, but they wouldn't want to really have one if they had to. And the League of Nations is going to split these new territories into three categories of mandates. And these are like new territories that came after the fall of the central powers. So they're sort of what's left. So Syria would, would be a, uh, one of the new territories. So these new territories are going to be split into three main categories. There's Class A, Class B, and Class C. Class A territories would be territories considered sufficiently advanced enough to be considered independent, although they are still subject to allied administrative control until they're, you know, considered fully able to stand alone. Class B territories would be territories under direct control of the allies' administration, which was intended to protect the rights of some of the native people. And then there was Class C. And these are territories that would fall under direct control of the Allies because the control requires a strong administrative hand. These are pl places that are prone to you know constant conflict. And if you leave them alone in any way, then, I mean, it wouldn't be safe. And Syria is given a Class A mandate. So they're, according to the League, they're advanced sufficiently advanced enough to be consider considered independent, although they are still subject to some sort of al allied administrative control until they're able to stand alone. So there's still that mandate. Uh, so it recognizes them as sort of educated or organized, and they're advanced in all aspects to be considered independent. And Faisal and his advisors are smart enough to know that the European mandates are never really what they appear. And regardless of what they claim as organization or a little bit of administrative advice, it's never that simple, they, they say. 
they say, you know, they're coming in, they're going to suppress, and they're going to dominate us, and there's there's no, there's going to be no room for local voices or what the population wants. Faisal sees the Supreme Council as the chessboard with the rules, the rules of the game, and the players that are playing the game are driven by a thirst for power over the region, and they'll use these rules to get what they want, and they'll show no sorts of sportsmanship because a lot of them, you know, they saw Wilson and his ideology as just a nuisance. Example, Japan, the only non-white victor, would ask the League of Nations to pass an equality clause, you know, saying that all nations are were racially equal. I mean, there's a difference, really. America, Britain, and France, as well as others, sort of ignored it or flat-out rejected it. The British was saying, no, we can't accept that. What if all the Muslims start immigrating to our country? Japan says, okay, you know, what about an equality of nations? Not based on race, but based on, you know, inherent qualities of a nation. Once again, it is rejected for various reasons. Everything gets worse when Faisal hears of the complications of Wilson back home. Uh, domestically in America, Wilson loses Congress in the midterms to the Republicans. And the Republicans are very against the League of Nations. They fear that America will lose a lot of its sovereignty. They ask, you know, why should we get involved in a conflict 6,000 miles away that we have nothing to do with? And that may seem sort of strange or foreign to us, but 100 years ago, America had a policy of isolation, and that policy of isolation was finally broken after we joined the First World War. So we, the United States has not always been the superpower it, it is today. So the Republicans will push back against this League of Nations that Wilson wants in his dream. And by the end of this, Wilson will, I think, end up dying a, a very broken man. And while Wilson is back in Washington dealing with the Republicans, the French and the British take this as an opportunity to advance their own desires. They say, well, Wilson's gone. Okay, great. That stuck-up guy and his dumb ideas, he won't be in the way anymore. The French and the British start discussing a deal. France says, okay, what about this? You get all of Iraq, and because of all of our infrastructure and our schools and our hospitals, you know, we did some pretty cool stuff in Syria. We'll, we'll just go ahead and take that and take it for ourselves you know, while Wilson's away. And Britain's a little bit hesitant because uh, one of the 1916 Sykes-Pickett Agreement, it gave France the coast and some of Syria that was supposed to remain an autonomous state under with, with French influence. And then there's the second reason, you know, Britain says we did also make that little agreement with them about how they, you know, helped us fight and we promised them sovereignty. You know, we would hate to go back on our word. And it's important to note here because the French are just now hearing about this agreement with Britain, the British agreement that they made with the, the Arab nationalists. The French are just hearing about this. They're like, what? And they, they had all these, the French had all these grand dreams. Oh, we're going to get a little bit of land here. We're going to get some resources here. It's going to be great. And I'll be reelected and I'll be honored. And they hear this news. And they say, whoops. But, you know, we, we really still like the, the Sykes-Pickett agreement. You know, maybe we can uphold something like that instead. And Wilson, Woodrow Wilson rushes back into the chamber and he's breathing heavily and he shouts, No, it's invalid. Russia, who was originally a part of the agreement, left because of their revolution back at home. They left the war, which makes the agreement no longer valid. 
the British even tell the French, yeah, you see? And on top of that, no one even wants you there in the first place, even Christian. Christians. Thompson writes, quote, The secret 1916 agreement was no longer valid, Wilson argued, because one of its signatories, Russia, had withdrawn. Moreover, the United States was indifferent to rival European claims on Syria because it insisted upon the principle of consent of the governed. The main issue in question was how Syrians would respond if France took the mandate. The British predicted that it would spark a huge war fueled by the strongest possible opposition by the whole of the Muslims and especially by the Arabs. Even Christians had protested to the British against French rule. End quote. So we have both sides and they're bickering, constant bickering. Finally, they agreed to send an independent poll that was going to be administered by Americans to Syria and to Lebanon to see what the population wants. You know, this is good. There's this sort of self-determination, popular sovereignty involved that Wilson was preaching and that Faisal wanted. But importantly, this poll does not guarantee independence. The mandate that is no longer... We define as two dudes going out to dinner for a mandate, but is now something that is increasingly uh, increasingly more likely that the French will have. So the mandate is still being upheld by Clemenceau, the prime minister of France. And he has these colonial wolves whispering in his ear, you know, counting them, telling them, you know, French troops will be necessary. You know, like I said, Faisal sort of sympathetic to the Arabs, but... No one rules alone, right? And Faisal heads back to Damascus, and he's like, okay, this is great. This is wonderful. And he goes back to Damascus in Syria, and he says, okay, I got to get things prepared for preparation of this poll. So the Supreme Council here is taking note of Article 22 and of the Wilsonianism. This poll follows from Wilson's fifth point that the voice of the people will be heard with equal weight. This could be great for Faisal, right? Because the council is going directly to the people. You know, if the people say it, you, know, who's, you can argue with that. I think also to me it goes back maybe to the social contract almost. Political power ultimately comes from the people. This bottom-up approach. and Rather than a top-down approach like so many colonial and imperialist powers use in other colonies. You know, we write this for you. And we don't really take any into consideration what you guys want. But for Faisal, in order to get this bottom-up approach, he returns to Syria, where he's met with all these religious leaders, Roman Catholics, Syrian Catholics, Orthodox Christians and Jews, and they, all their leaders, you know, they're coming up and they're accepting him. And he holds an election for Congress, sometimes against the influence of Britain, sometimes France, sometimes against internal struggles. But all in all, it goes pretty well. And Faisal, his political party is the Fated Party, and they're a more moderate party. They, although it is Faisal's party, they do not, they only get a minor proportion of the total seats of the newly elected Congress. Most of the seats go to social conservatives. Not to some that, you know, that might be worrying, but. They all shared Faisal's dream of an independent Syria. But, and there's always that but, right? They see independence in different ways. There's these independent factions that support you know, full independence against Britain and France. 
they no mandates whatsoever there will be no compromise it is all or it is nothing and on the other side there are those who favor more of a gradual uh, gradual independence and they're sort of maybe more in favor of the mandates so that's you can sort of see here maybe to Faisal in his mind democracy sort of biting him in the ass in a way but this is good though in a, in a more broad sense because you have the American Commission coming over and they need to see that Syria is somewhat organized it's civilized and it can the people are represented in a fair and democratic manner that's all things they want to see that they can then report back to the Supreme Council and the report and Faisal, he tells the Congress, okay, regardless of all this, regardless of all the different ways we see independence, we need to prove to this American commission that we represent the nation. And that we can create a constitution that preserves minority rights so that we can say that we're ready to be free and we're ready to say that we're independent. And Congress says, we got you, no worries. They adopt a resolution that sort of talks about their goals and their thoughts. The first one is that the Congress wants a complete political independence for greater Syria. The second is that democratic, civil, and constitutional monarchy will be the government, and it will be governed by decentralized principles which safeguard the rights of minorities, and that also Faisal will be their king. They also said that Syrians are no less intelligent than any other nation and that they do not need a mandatory power. They also said that they seek economic and technical assistance from the United States for no more than 20 years. And they said, you know, well, well America here, they're the least colonial power, so we'll accept them. We just, they need to have no intention of staying longer than the allotted time. And some others said, you know, if we can't have, if we have to have a mandate, right, if this is going to be forced on us and we can't have the United States, then we'll take Britain. But that was not as widely accepted. And, you know, looking at just this quick resolution from the Western, my American-biased view of Syria here, you know, I think about it now, right, with all the conflict and, you know, the corruption but you know, this resolution is not something that I, it, I mean, that's not something I think of when I think of Syria today. Minority, preserving minority rights, tolerance, democracy, equality under the law, decentralization. I mean, that doesn't seem foreign to me at all. Those are, you know, things I, I believe in, a, you know, grow up in, you know, in America. And this idea of a sovereign Syria is very popular among people in, in Syria back then and it was just constantly snowballing and France is looking at this and they're saying this is dangerous and they want to move in fast before it's too late you know before there's too much popular support right and they're going to look at these people supporting this independence and they're going to say no we have a plan for this don't worry we're going to do something about this we can't have that and other countries sort of feel very similar to France in a way that, you know, they want what's theirs. And Italy moves to Anatolia. They, they launch soldiers there to grab some territory that they felt was theirs, right, justified through the war. 
Greeks see this and they're like, well, you're not doing that. Oh, this is a free-for-all apparently? Okay. And they react by claiming it against Italy. In the end, 300 Turks end up dying, which only makes the conflict worse. Britain hears about this and starts worrying about the Muslim population in Anatolia and argues that the French French territory should be carved out for this region for a Turkish state. French says, hell no. We agreed that that was our territory. You can't come in here and say, oh, we're just going to take a little bit here. Oh, we're such, you know, nice guys. No, that was ours. We lost husbands and sons and wives and daughters the same as you. And they're like, Britain, France tells Britain, you know, you're breaking your pinky promise. You, You promised, man. You cannot be breaking pinky promises. They end up saying, fine. We'll just leave all this, all this mess, we'll leave it up to the Americans and the American Commission. And the American Commission, I know, it finally arrives in Syria. And the delegation, a Syrian delegation greets them. They're all like, oh yeah, thanks for coming. Great to have you here, right? It's, look, look around. You see, we're not some, we're not a bunch of backwards religious fanatics that can be neatly packed into a stereotype. And they tell the commission... You know, we got something you'll like to hear. We're setting up up this civil democratic government. And Americans like, oh, yeah, yeah, good, okay, yeah, cool. And they they tell the Americans, you know, the mandates, you know, if it's it's necessary, we'll accept an American one. Uh, They they point around to the environment and say, look, over there. uh, Here we're rooting out Ottoman corruption that was left over. And then the Americans sort of turn their head around and see the more independence factions that are, are against any sort of mandate or compromise. And they're a little bit worried. And, you know, they're saying, you know, this poll, right, it doesn't secure your independence because there's still that whole mandate thing. And Faze is like, yeah, 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 sure, don't, don't worry about that. Yeah, it's okay, it's okay. You know, this is what you get when you get democracy. And some of Wilson's advisors, they're a little skeptical of all this. Uh, most of all, for a, sort of an American mandate, and then Wilson back at home is still doing, still dealing with the Republican-controlled Congress. Which, keep in mind, like this, the Senate needs to ratify the Treaty of Versailles. And one of S- Wilson's advisors is telling him, you know, if, if if France gets this mandate, this is war. And you know, I feel like if I were Wilson, I'd be panicking. And William Yale, which is a character there that was reporting on a lot of this, he was sort of the the opposite view. He took more of a, I guess, an imperial approach, maybe. But he opposed the report supporting that there should be three separate states. That was his view. There should be Christian, Lebanon, a Muslim Syrian, a Jewish Palestine. And ultimately, after the commission is done polling... It sends a telegram saying that the Syrians were ready to build their own state for both Christians and Muslims, but under a mandate. But then, fatefully, Wilson suffers a stroke. He was old. Right? You can often see that with a lot of presidents. Their before and after pictures, they don't look much better. And he suffers this stroke. And the report gets locked up because it doesn't have his, his approval. So no one gets to see it for a very long time. And the popular opinion of the people of Syria, including Muslims, Christians, and Jews, will never be heard. To the imperialist French and the British, this is a perfect opportunity. 
Wilson is facing resistance domestically. He has poor health. So they get together and they sign an agreement similar to the Sykes-Picket Agreement. Britain was facing a lot of revolts in its other territories and colonies. And it needs the money and the men that they had in Syria so that they can use them to, to crush those revolts. And French is like, okay, all right, that's fine with us. Here, you take out your men. You can keep a little bit of oil over here in Mesopotamia. You agree to pull out all your troops from Syria, and we'll move in our troops, and we'll take indirect control of the coast, not including Palestine, of course. You can keep that. And that each nation would respect the zone of the others. So British troops are leaving, and then here come French troops. It's not looking good for Faisal. It's not looking good for the people of Syria. So the Arabs, right, this is a huge betrayal. The British had promised to support their interest and be on their side. And then here they are, leaving. And then here come the French. And the French, they hear the bell ringing, and they are salivating. The French are short of men after this war. And they, they use a lot of men from colonies, especially from North Africa who were very used to treating their subjects in a very disrespectful way, in a dominating way, with lots of force. Not in a way of, in a way that shows that these people are worthy of independence. And they start to abuse a lot of these Syrians. And this would often undermine Faisal in the Syrian Congress. Faisal complains to the French, and the French are like, oh yeah, sorry, sorry, we're not, they, they don't know, we, we, I guess we didn't tell them enough, I'm sorry, we still have good intentions here, don't worry. That's not how we operate. This was a mistake. The French, one officer would go on, or a couple officers would go on to arrest this guy named Rashid Rida. He's very influential. He's sort of the pragmatist of, of the Syrian people in this story. Uh, he he was uh, had many magazines, right? He was sort of this Islamic reformist who took on more of the liberal ideas but still sort of balanced it with Islam. And he was more of a, a pragmatist, I guess, in this in this story. And they, they arrest Rita and the friends say, I'm sorry, 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 we apologize. And they actually go as far as to fire these officers, showing sort of good intentions. But this, what, what the French were doing is just an appetizer for what was to come. And the population is feeling these injustices in the fullest effect. Popular movements start demanding that Congress pursue full independence. An expression, right, that Faisal would not really have approved of, because he's the more moderate here. And he, at this time, he's away in Britain on negotiations. He's negotiating with the French Prime Minister, Clemenceau. And he did not want, like, he did not want this at all. And while he's there with Clemenceau, he signs the January 6th Accord with the sympathetic French Prime Minister. And it basically is a minimalist version of the, of the French mandate. French troops would remain outside of Syria's designated, French, uh, designated zone. The French would not enter unless invited. In exchange, Syria would only accept sort of French advisors and aid. And it also would have to accept Lebanon as an autonomous state. And this deal would stay in place as long as Faisal had popular support. If there was sort of any, if he could not uphold it, the deal was canceled. And because of the popular support for independence in Syria, in the Syrian Congress, uh, they reconvene without Faisal's authorization. 
and the people here are really starting to take action for themselves and relying on themselves. Here you can see the democracy that was set up going against what FaZe wanted. And a Congress argues that the new accord goes directly against Article 22 of the League of Nations covenant, right? What is this? And some protesters start shouting, to war, to war. Now, Congress alone tries to vote on a constitution that will represent all of greater Syria. The French here are deciding, the French general in charge of the region is deciding that force is the best policy here. And he starts moving to occupy some important regions. And all the while, Britain is blocking communications with Faisal. And, you know, while this is happening, and Zaid is who is Faisal's brother, who he put in charge while he was gone, he makes the decision to dissolve Congress before they can you know, do anything too drastic. And Faisal, the moderate, he returns with the minimalist, minimalist version of the January 6th Accord to what he thought, you know, was good news. Uh, to the nationalist movement, right, sweeping over Syria. And the Syrians were pissed. Faisal was a traitor to them. How dare you give up the French? You know, we have, Wilson said, self-determination. The French general, right, and his staff, they would use their networks in Syria to do everything they could to undermine the support. They are helped further when the French, the sympathetic French Prime Minister, Prime Minister Clemenceau, loses his election to Millerand, who would be the new Prime Minister. And I know there's a French way to say it, but I, I can't do that. And Millerand, the new Prime Minister, he is not uh, as sympathetic. I guess you would put him in the opposite camp. He's going to be supporting a lot of more forceful policies in Syria. He upholds that, and I think he knew he knows here that because of this popular support, Faisal's not going to get it. So he's he's uh, he's not Faisal's not going to get the support. So he says, you know, uh, if you can't uphold, we'll, we'll still uphold the Clemenceau Accord because I'm so great. Look at me, but you know, you break any of it, it's canceled. And I think he knew that's what was going to happen. Decay, who is a one of the part of the French colonial lobby, and he's here in Syria. And he argues that Faisal, he tells Miller, and Faisal's a religious fanatic. He intends to destroy Christians and form his own theocratic state. And that Faisal's in bed with the Turkish nationalists, and he's he's heir to the Young Turks, right? You remember the Young Turks? You know, he cannot be trusted to compromise with the French. And he said that the French should make a deal with Britain. France should get full control of Syria in exchange for the British getting Mosul and Palestine. You know, if they get their own, if the Syrians get their own sovereign state, it can unleash the most, like, these crazy Wilsonian nationalism and other colonies. We could have up uprisings everywhere. Do you really want that? You know, in your first year of being a prime minister? Thompson writes, quote, Decay aimed, aimed to subvert Syrian popular will as expressed in the King Crane report, which was the American Commission report, and defy Britain's promises to the Arabs. He would hijack Article 22 of the Covenant of the League of Nations to support France's colonial claims. The French mandate would be defined not in Wilsonian terms of limited guidance, but rather as the composition and force of direct French rule, end quote. Faisal and the Congress are starting to lose hope in, in Wilson and his vision his grand ideas and aspirations for a country.
So because, you know, he's suffering the stroke, the American Commission's report is not going to be released here. And he's fighting Republican Congress back home. And here are Britain and France carving out their own empires. And no one has Syria's back here. They were isolated and they were alone. Even in Faisal's own country, a large share of the population wanted complete independence with no compromise. And the French here are surely, but sure, slowly but surely gaining ground and taking over the mandate and strong-arming Syrians. And the French new prime minister, Millerin, tells the French general this. The Syrians, right, they can't uphold it. The, the original January 6th Accord. And they cannot respect it and keep order in the boundaries and stay away from us, right? The deal's canceled, as I said. And this is worsened by the Mirage Massacre, I think that's how you say it. In Turkey, Turkish nationalists are fighting against the French. Sort of this rise up. And because of poor organization and communication on the French side, the French end up retreating, leaving tons of Christian Armenian refugees to be slaughtered. Now, this is not good for international politics. And this causes Christians in the Middle East to start doubting French protection. You know, they start doubting the French can even protect them. On top of that, the British are starting to doubt the French too. Right? No massacre occurred when the, French, uh, when the British were there. But I think, to be fair to France, this sort of just coincided with the Turkish nationalist movement. So Faisal here, because of all this, you know, he has two options. The people accept the accord, which is not very likely, or war with France. So he travels back to the Paris Peace Conference to give a third option. And he argues that because Article 22 said, quote, nations which could be justifiably interpreted as, quote, state. He says, quote, certain communities formerly belonging to the Turkish Empire have reached a stage of development where their existence as independent nations can be provisionally recognized as subjects to the rendering of administrative advice and assistance by mandatory, end quote. Right, that was the article. He's saying state as in sovereign independent nation. To prove this, he needs to present a constitution to Paris, the Paris Peace Conference, to prove that he is a state, right, an independent sovereign state, and to get the, the like the nation interpretation of state, he's going to get this constitution going, so that other people around him, other nations, can start recognizing it. To him, it's a, a civil weapon almost. And Faisal returns back home to set up the Congress, or get get back to the Congress and appoint some more moderate conservatives that would ultimately favor more of a compromise to sort of count, counterbalance the independent parties. And while he's doing this, a large proportion of the population is out here condemning the January 6th Accord to the Clemenceau. And Faisal, the moderate, he starts to sort of accept here that, you know, compromise ultimately might not even happen. He's starting to accept the idea that independence might have to be the way it is his father right who was originally sort of the leader of the arab revolt publicly condemns him for his compromising views and sort of that that family pressure sort of changes his mind you know the french see this as sort of a weakness right no they're all just a bunch of extremists they're lying the whole time they don't care about compromise right you know in their eyes he's not upholding his end of the deal you know, we gave him the, the, you know, he said he uphold it, and now he's not. The deal's, the deal is null, right? The deal's off. 
Congress hears this, and they start drafting up their Declaration of Independence. And similarly, right, to the American Declaration, there was the, the, right, the natural rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. There are some arguments in their Declaration that relied on the natural rights of man and the legal rights to life. And they said, oh, well, we helped successfully rebel against the Turkish government. And there's Article 22. And there's all these reasons. And they get to discussing Islam. Should we put it in the Declaration of Independence? And most agree Islam should play some sort of role in the government. Some say yes. Some say no. There's sort of a sect of separation of church and state. And some think that you know Islam would be good. It could connect sort of the, the country and the people. You know, it could be uniting, and it should be a source of legislation, even if the government is not Islamic, right? Sort of, of, of a grounding, I guess. And they, the declaration declares, quote, The temporary occupation of Syria imposed by wartime conditions must come to an end. It is time to fulfill the nation's aspirations. Congress, therefore, decides by consensus not to fulfill absolute independence of our Syrian country and its natural borders, including Palestine, based on civil representation, the protection of more minority rights, and the rejection of Zionist claims to make a Palestine a Jewish homeland or a destination for migration. End quote. And Faisal, he finally is starting to accept here that independence might have to be the way it is. And their independence goes on to claim the Arab role in the war, the Great War, the Allied declarations that, the, you know, the Allies made, and the King, King Crane poll, the American Commission, you know, what is that about then, right? They declare Faisal to be their king, but a limited king within a constitutional government. They left out the role Islam will ultimately play, but they did say that Faisal or that the king's faith will be Islam. They upheld their idea of a decentralized government with provincial states, including autonomy for Lebanon and an independent state of Iraq. They tell the British and French that you know this is a political necessity. Do you see what's happening with all these people? Like what if they're they're screaming for independence? What are you supposed to say no? This is sort of to keep the order and the peace. You know, your promises here are taking too long, and people needed it before it just got too worse. It got much, much more terrible, right? This would, you know, it was not going to affect our relationship in any way, I hope, right? We still wish to be on good terms. And I kind of want to quickly here look at, because I'm, I'm painting France here to be the sort of the bad guy, right? And But, like I said, there's, there's always going to be some... There are going to be the wolves, and then there's going to be people who are a little bit more on on Syria's side. And in in looking at the the French chambers, there were the socialists who were supporting more of the common man. They supported Syria in this. They argued for Syria. And then there were the moderates in France, who just really didn't want to get involved with another war. They're like, by God, guys, I mean, come on, we really need to keep doing this. And then there was mostly everybody else who were very against Syria, and they said that the Syrians, you know, they're in bed with the Bolsheviks, look at the socialists, they're defending them. And now over in the United States, 
The Senate rejects the League of Nations again. So it's not looking good for Syria here. And then finally, right, the not-so-quote impartial Supreme Council rejects Faisal and the Syrian Congress finally, once and for all. And Faisal is panicking. He, he, he's like, oh God, I need to get back to the peace conference and try to get you know recognized officially in some way. And then finally the Supreme Council says, okay, Faisal, we'll recognize you after France assumes the official mandate. And Syria, like so many other countries, is just becoming an afterthought at the count at the Supreme Council and the peace, Paris Peace Conference. And for a lot of this time, Faisal is keeping the Syrian Syrian Congress in the dark. They have no idea what's going on back in Europe. You know what's being said over there at the Paris Peace Conference. So because of this, the Syrian Congress finally decides to draft up articles of a constitution to act as like the civil weapon against colonialism and sort of to act against Faisal too. Rita, Rashida Rita, right? Remember the Islamic reformist, more liberal kind of guy, the pragmatist in in a way. He argues that, you know, Congress, we can do this because Congress appointed Faisal, so we have the supreme power over him. And he backs a lot of this up by the new sort of Islamic reformist line of thinking. Thompson writes, quote, Popular sovereignty was necessary not only to counterbalance the despotic tendencies of the king, but also to guarantee Muslims' independence against European imperialism. Only with full sovereignty could their societies exercise the fair and just rule of law. Rita believed the legislatures exercising the authority of popular sovereignty could block corruptible monarchs from selling out their countries to Europeans, as the Iranian Shah and the Egyptian Khedive had done in the late 19th century. Rita also believed that liberal constitutionalism was an authentic expression of Islamic values, not a Western corruption. End quote. Faisal argues with this. He sort of is getting an idea, right, that he's given up too much power already. He can't know, no, no more. These people, right, they don't know kind of what's, they, they're not over here negotiating with the, the French and the Europeans. They don't have a full view of what's going on. They might, you know, they might mess something up. So Congress and Faisal come to an agreement. Once the Constitution is ratified, new elections could be held for a true parliament. They also agreed that Congress held the power over the cabinet in matters of Syrian independence. Right here, Faisal always worried, like I said, because he has kind of kept them in the dark for a little. They, they weren't there in person to make sort of informed diplomatic decisions with France and Britain. But Congress goes on here to set up sort of some more procedural stuff. Uh, they set up stuff to fight against cronyism. They give monthly salaries. They organize votes to approve of democratic set of principles. You could join a debate by putting your name on a list. You need a, a quorum to conduct affairs. Resolutions were adopted with simple majorities. And they set up, most importantly, a lot of standing committees to deal with tax policies, foreign affairs, but most importantly, to draft up an official constitution. And the Constitutional Committee is in charge of drafting up the Constitution as a civil weapon. Uh, many people here, including myself, we kind of we sort of see the similarities between the American Constitutional Convention of 1787 
but as right was Thompson said, the difference here was the it's a constitutional republic in America, but a constitutional monarchy in Syria. And they draw up some important articles. First one is that the Syrian Arab Kingdom is a civil parliamentary monarchy, and that the the provinces form a political unit that cannot be severed. And that the king must respect the divine laws and remain loyal to the nation and uphold the constitution. The king is the commander and he's the chief, but wars must be approved by Congress. Right? I think a lot of this you're sort of seeing very similar to the American Constitution and many others. More of you know, the liberal ideas of a separation of, of powers, a checks and balances almost. The, they also drop an article uh, where at least they, they explicitly omit Islamic law and instead use divine law. And this is a, as a compromise between the people who believe in a separation of church and state and those who believe that religion should play, should play a dominant role. So, you know, just like the American Constitution was, was, was driven by compromise, so is this one. Other articles that I think are very interesting, especially through an American biased view of the region, right? They included articles that protected the freedom of belief, the freedom of association, the fr- and the freedom of speech. They protected citizens from torture, from arbitrary arrest. They protected citizens from forced labor, and they protected private property. They were also protected from unwarranted search and seizures, and then that all children were guaranteed a public education. And as I said, there was that separation of church and powers. They had a bicameral legislature. Legislature. There was the upper, which they called the Senate, which was to be elected by provincial assemblies, which is very similar how the U.S. used to elect senators before they changed the laws. Right, And then the rest would be appointed by the king. And there's the lower chambers, which is more of the common, like the people's chambers which was the House of Deputies, or the Chamber of Deputies, excuse me, and they were elected by the people. And the cabinet here is responsible to the Chamber of Deputies. They could vote a no confidence. They, uh, if the ministers would also be required to answer summons by the legislature. The king could also dissolve the Chamber of Deputies, only in cases where there was a dispute between the deputies and the cabinet. And this is also only if the Senate decided against the chamber. Now, there are many articles that were drawn up that I'm not discussing. But the debate for all of them was heated. And groups split into factions very similar to the United States. There were people who favored a strong central government and those who favored a decentralized government. But importantly, everyone was equal under the law, except that, of course, males above the age of 20 could vote. And Thompson gets into, in her book, the role women played in all of this, and I think that's very important, so I'm going to talk about it here. She says that a lot of the, the, a lot of the, the women lobbyist argument was like, the women played a big role in the war. There are many prominent opponents, or proponents, that pointed. You know, women could vote. You know, all over the West. Look at Britain, the United States, 
you know, this is this is the progressive view. If we're, if we're going to see be seen as someone who's independent, civilized, and orderly, we should let women vote. There was opposition, of course. Many, the opposition relied on, on a lot of sort of religious, traditional arguments. Those in favor of women's suffrage shouted, you know, the edu- educated women should vote. Opponents called women ignorant and that they shouldn't, they wouldn't be able to understand the, the deep corruption of society. And that most women, you know, in Arab society weren't really educated in the first place. There were people in the back shouting, you know, one woman is better than a hundred ignorant men. You know, if if they relied here on self-determination, right, the popular sovereignty of the nation, well, then guess what? You're you're ignoring half the population. Yeah, how's that look? Rita, right, the pragmatists. He sets an important precedent with, with the answer, with his answer. He gets in front of both sides, and he's holding both his hands out, saying, well, guys, stop. He says that they will slowly and gradually educate all women because there would be this huge backlash if they just let all women vote. Uh, they needed everyone on their side in this with, with to get the Constitution passed. Instead, because Congress represents the public interest, and at this time the public interest, interest at this moment does not support letting women vote, that they could, should not do it right now. But in the future, that would change. Right now, what's important is just getting this constitution and their political sovereignty passed. You know, people were upset because, right, this is a matter of, of principle to them. But it stopped the debate, you know, just for then because they had just heard that France got the official mandate over Syria. And the French lose, they lose no time. They arrest a preacher who they called who called Faisal the king they take down arab flags and file a petition against the syrian congress the syrians agree that they must show right a hand of force in this the time for diplomacy is over they elect a new strong leader in the congress who you know they elect a bunch of officials that will fight back against france and they announce a, mil- a military draft for all 20 to, all males 20 to 40 and Lebanon is given independence by France at this time. But some members of Leb- Lebanon, they look over at their neighbor where the grass is maybe greener to them. And they see, you know, Syria discussing the rights of minorities. And they're thinking, you know, that's not so bad, right? And over in the Syrian Congress, there's talking about, right, so how far should we go with these minority rights? with with representation some argue that you know in the past there had been half of all seats were represented by minorities and then there were those who wanted it to be more proportional they came to a compromise in local elections there would be a minority representative for every one fifteen thousand and then for one in every hundred one twenty muslims one twenty thousand muslims for the National Assembly, they came to 1 in 30 for minorities and 1 in 40 for Muslims. And then the final constitution ended up being 148 articles long. And then to summarize the process, they said, quote, The committee studied carefully the roots and bases of democratic life, while minding the conditions of the country and the people, with their differing sex and hopes, end quote. Thompson goes on to write, quote, 
Members finally settled upon civil parliamentary form of government because it would balance freedom and rule of law. The proposed regime would mobilize public opinion, but also guard against exclusionary and religious elements in politics and government. End quote. The people would go on to say, you know, the king is elected by the people, not appointed by some god. The king is someone who is respected, but is ultimately not responsible. The government is, so he cannot really act like a despot, like the Ottomans had. They also discuss a Bill of Rights, you know, the freedom of belief and religion, including protection of all religious schools, freedom from censorship, and many, many other things I think I recognize in my, in the own, my own American Constitution. And Congress ratifies it, right? This is over much debate and over a long period of time. But it's finally, after compromise, it is ratified. And over in Lebanon, the French are trying to draft their own constitution for the Lebanese, right? This, instead of the bottom-up approach that the Syrians were using, the French are giving the Lebanese a top-down approach. And the Lebanese are beginning to be a little bit distrustful, distrustful of the French, right? They're looking over at Syria, and the grass is a little greener for them. They look at these protection of minority rights, and the Lebanese Administrative Council votes to defect to the Syrian Arab government. The French general is enraged, and he abolishes the council in Palestine. Many rejoice, but the British blocked all ideas or movements of incorporating Palestine into the Syrian Arab government. Keep in mind, some of the, a lot of in Lebanon and Palestine, not everyone was on board, but there were a lot of people, though. The French tell the Syrians, yeah, 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 you govern yourselves. But also in secret, the French are drawing up invasion plans. They claim, right, they say, well, we have the mandate, so we have sole authority. The French Prime Minister Miller and gives the French, the French general in, in Syria, free range of action. The British are still, in a way, trying to uphold their promises for an independent Syria. Faisal is still rejecting this mandate claiming, you know, there was still, you know, what about the January 6th Accord, right, the more minimalist version, the French saying no, that's now canceled. They call Faisal this leftover general from the Great War. You know, he has no, he has no authority there. What are they talking about? To the French, the Supreme Council's mandate supersedes the pact that Faisal made with Clemenceau. And the report, right, the American report, you know, that doesn't matter. And the French call the Syrians and, and Faisal, they call them rebels and bandits who, who, who blocked them from, you know, stopping all the massacre at Mirage, Mirage. And the French assembly votes 478 to 83 in favor of an invasion of Syria. So chaos begins. Faisal had kept his government in the dark for a long time. There were many angry critics, many families who had lost power after the Ottoman Empire gladly welcomed the French. Populist independent movements started attacking French garrisons, which undermined Faisal. Faisal starts threatening Congress with dissolvement, and the French start taking territory in the east. Faisal is panicking, and he asks for international negotiations. You know, please come on one last shot, right? The Hail Mary. But he's denied. The receiver misses the pass. The French give Faisal an ultimatum. Submit or be destroyed. Now Faisal, he just takes it back to the people. See what they have to say. 
They shout back, no, defense until death. Which I think for Faisal, which is not something he wanted to hear. Because one of the officials said that, you know, the Syrian army was wouldn't last five minutes from a French invasion. The guy they had put in charge of the army um, basically was bluffing. He, he, he used to claim the army was better equipped and more advanced than it was. He said he did it to sort of scare the French. And obviously, so now Faisal was like, okay, well, defense until death. Well, the defense isn't going to last very long, is it? So it's not looking good for anybody. Faisal acts fast, and he sends sort of this or the oral acceptance of the ultimatum. So he's saying, okay, we submit that they would accept. Syria, The Syrian Congress hears about this, and they vote to outlaw the acceptance. Faisal tries to suspend the Congress for two months after the little shenanigans. He can't. Now, sort of, I guess, for the Congress, Syrian Congress, this is good. Because Faisal is now acting as the scapegoat. This is this is him who did this. So everyone blamed him. Mobs took to the streets shouting threats against Faisal. They stormed the citadel and stole weapons. They marched to the royal palace, you know, shouting death. You know, death to Faisal or whoever. Some people who supported Faisal were firing on the, the crowds and the mobs, you know, shooting and chaos. And by the end, there would be hundreds of bodies covered in the streets. Religious leaders who once supported Faisal started to turn against him. He was very isolated and he was alone. The French moved fast because of the lack of defense and chaos that was engulfing Syria. Faisal had accepted the ultimatum, so, like, why were the French still attacking, right? Well, the French, the acceptance apparently arrived late, although we learned that it actually didn't, or he, or the, the French general knew he accepted it, but hadn't re received it yet, so he went ahead and said, he went ahead and sent the French troops out for the invasion, and Faisal's like, come on, you knew this, you knew I accepted it. And so the French general gives him a new condition. He says, okay, the new condition for submission is a permanent French mission in Damascus, going against all other agreements. Faisal starts mobilizing at the news to, do, or excuse me, the citizens start mobilizing at the news to defend their homeland, but it doesn't matter anymore. The well-equipped well French finish them off by lunch, and they march into Damascus. Many government officials managed to escape under the threat of French occupation. I mean, even they even planned to, the French even planned to depose Faisal while saying, oh, you know, it's okay. They put on reparations. They charged Syrians with reparations to pay for all the damages. They, they swear to punish any hostile agents. And they expel Faisal in the Syrian Congress. Faisal vows to fight back and he travels to British Palestine. Now, I've been speaking for a little bit, and this is not the end. This is not the end of the story. These are just the events leading up to the beginning. And I think even today we can still see the conflict. I mean, just by reading the news. 
the French would finally leave Syria after World War II in 1946. That's over 25 years later. And that took with the help of the United Nations. But we can still see today, right? The United Nations may have fixed some things, but it also bred for more conflict. Big reason why today when I think of the Middle East is, is, is because of this. All I can think of is conflict. It makes me wonder, you know, how things would have turned out if borders were drawn, were drawn respecting natural boundaries and ethnicities. And how things would have turned out if the Syrian Arab Kingdom was left to be 100% free and independent. Or even, you know, what if the French didn't get the mandate? What if the Americans took it? What about then? And I, obviously this is more of an Arab point of view of the podcast. And I'm picking on the French here. You know, the sins of the father, not the sins of the son. You know, times change. But there's still sort of the remnants. And we can see that today. Very, very easily. And the French here are driven to me, right, by the imperialist aims. And we can see where that got them. Constant rebellion. Problems with problems that couldn't be solved with a flick of a switch. The, the desert, the Middle East desert to them was a form of colonial quicksand. You know, where lots of money and lives were lost. And I'm not sure how much they got out of it, really. Maybe some oil. You know, this is not the end of the story for Faisal and the Syrian people, like I said. But I chose to end it there. Because I don't want to bore you half to death. People enjoy it and they want to know more. Part two, of course. I enjoy reading and, and, and doing this. So I want to say thank you for listening. A lot of time goes into this podcast. So if you enjoy it, please share it with a friend. Leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. If you want to know, know more, make sure you check out How the West Stole Democracy from the Arabs. There's a lot of reading on it. It's great. I left out a lot of interesting characters and events that's, that adds to the complexity of the narrative. But I'm looking at about an hour and a half here, so I'm going to go ahead and close it here. So please, guys, follow, subscribe for more. And thank you so much for listening. I learned a lot. I hope you guys did, too. All right. Thanks. Bye.